Will you turn with me to page 550, Psalm 27, in the church Bibles that you'll find at the back of your, your chairs. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my saviour, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over the, to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. As I think most of you know, my name is Ben. I'm one of the ministers here. And I wonder, uh, what is your favourite place in Manly? Uh, we asked uh, some friends uh, here at St. Matt's uh, that very question, and here's some of the answers they gave. My favourite place in Manly is the building right behind me, uh, which is the first place I moved in. Um, in when I arrived in Australia from France. Um, I lived there for a few years. Um, lived in a, in a few different places and uh, got the chance to come back here and live here again. Um, I didn't know many people when I arrived. Um, I get to meet all those neighbours that became really good friends and over the years they actually became family. My favourite place in Manly is Wentworth Street Coffee Shop. It is phenomenal. One, if you know me that you know me, I love a good mocha. Uh, but more than that, um, it's community, it's um, part of living in Manly. The people who own the coffee shop, they go to Manly Village School. I love supporting local business and you can't beat the mockers, they're fantastic. My favourite place in Manly is Manly Ocean Foods. It's my parents' business, it's a fish and chip shop and it's really important to me because, you know, the church is like a major aspect of my life. I'm here like almost all the time and to have my parents working in Manly 
it just makes like, you know, Manly the centre, so everything's all together and that's really important. Yeah. And um, it's really, you know, helpful in social situations because I'll come out of kids' church on a Sunday and I'll get lunch with all my friends and we'll just walk around Manly and it's great. Our favourite place in Manly is Yogurt Land. My favourite place in Manly is right here at North Dane, particularly the ocean and the walkway that's here. Uh, and that's because every time I went travelling, I would always come back and one of the first things I would do would be go for a swim with my sister and tell her about what I had got up to. And it was on one of those times coming back that I told her I had decided to make the decision to go to church and that that church was going to be St Matthews at Manly. My favourite place in Manly is of course Fairy Bower. Uh, it is uh, a beautiful spot with obvious natural beauty, both above, below, and certainly on the surface of the water. Uh, the surface of the water is where I have the most fun, and I've spent many hours out there um, reflecting on God's glory. It's an escape from the pressures of the world of Sydney. Sydney's a big city. When I'm out in the water, I feel at home in, in nature, and again, uh, feeling the boundary between what's in my control and what's not in my control. My favourite place in Manly is Little Manly. It's like a best kept secret with amazing sunsets. Away from the crowds, less buzz and more bliss. A place where I can see God in the little details. The lazy seagulls and sleepy yachts having conversation with the ocean. It's just so uninterrupted and both got pretty. There it is, yeah. So yeah, so a big thank you to everyone involved in that, as uh, and in particular Maya Gray and Tasman Van Loon, the creative guys uh, on that one. So uh, yeah, let me pray. Father, please would you speak to us now that we might know you deeper and love you more. For we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, well, for me, uh, my favorite place uh, is actually that place. Does anyone know that place? Uh, it's no one? Um, it's the cliffs overlooking Shelley Beach, so I absolutely love it. It looks a little bit like Pride Rock um, out of The Lion King, if you've seen The Lion King. And um, I love to go up there and just um, actually just spend time with God. Like, um, I just, I love to go up there and pray and just look out um, at the vast ocean because it reminds me um, of the vast and endless love uh, of God, and I just love it. And uh, so you might be thinking, why are we talking about favorite places uh, right now. Well, uh, if you're new today, we're in the middle of a series um, called Among Us, and uh, this is a series that we're looking at in the lead up to Christmas, and um, it's all about places. Um, it's all about the ways in which God has made himself present among his people. Uh, last week, we looked at the Garden of Eden, uh, where God walked among his people in paradise, uh, and today we're looking at the temple and uh, before, just before I introduce um, what we're looking at today, I just want to say, if, if anyone has young kids, 
and you would like to talk to them about the things we're talking about here in this sermon series, let me recommend this book. Um, It's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And it's a wonderful summary of the things we're looking at over this Advent series. Um, So if you'd like to get your hands on a copy of this and uh, you'd rather not order it yourself, we're very happy to order it for you. If you just fill that in on the Connect card, put those in the offertory bags as they pass around later. And it's about, uh, with a discount that we get, it's about $12. Okay, so The Garden, The Curtain and The Cross, let me recommend that as a wonderful book to be reading through with your kids about the, the, the themes that we're looking at this series. Okay, without further ado, The Temple. What we're looking at today is the purpose of the temple, the problem of the temple, and the person who gets us in. If you've lost the page, page 550, number one, the purpose of the temple, Psalm 27. Uh, Here we meet a man uh, called David, um, and he was Israel's second and greatest king, um, and his favorite place is a little bit surprising, actually. Um, it's, it's not a bure uh, in Fiji. Uh, it's not a chalet uh, in Switzerland. It's not a mansion uh, on, the, um, you know, on Sydney Harbour. David's favourite place was actually a tent. And um, it was called the tabernacle, and it was the portable version of what became known as the temple. Um, so this was David's favourite place. Have a look with me at verse 4, page 550. David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, one thing. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. So this is David's favorite place in the whole world. Um, His favorite place was the tabernacle or the temple. Why? Was that his favorite place? Well, before I answer that question, I want to talk a bit about what the tabernacle represented um, and what it was all about. Uh, So all the way back in the book of Exodus, God commanded uh, Moses uh, to build a tabernacle uh, as the sanctuary for God um, to dwell amongst his people. So you can read all about this in Exodus 25, 26, and 40 in particular. And God was very specific. Um, Essentially, he um, instructed Moses to build the tabernacle with three main sections. Uh, So in the first section, there was the outer court. Okay, so in the outer court, uh, there was the altar of burnt offering, uh, which was for animal sacrifices. And then there was the basin, which I think is that, um, which was for the priests to wash and consecrate themselves in service to the Lord. But then the second main section was the larger part of the tabernacle. That, that's that bit there. And only priests were allowed in there. Uh, and in that uh, holy place, there were three main objects. Uh, there was the lampstand, uh, which represented the presence of God shining out from the tabernacle. Uh, there was the, the table of the bread of the presence, Um, which represented the intimate fellowship that God wanted to have with his people, as it were, table fellowship, sharing a meal with them uh, as friends uh, share meals with friends. Um, And then there's the altar of incense, uh, which represented God's desire to hear the prayers of his people uh, and to answer them. Okay, and so then the third section um, is the most holy place. It was the heart of the tabernacle. Uh, And it was a cube-shaped section um, separated from the rest of the tabernacle uh, by a very thick curtain. And in the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And uh, that was a wooden box overlaid with gold. um, And 
uh, with angels carved on either side of its lid. Uh, And then inside the ark, God commanded Moses to place the two stone tablets on which were written uh, the law, or in other words, the Ten Commandments. And then when Moses had finished constructing the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's the Shekinah glory, the, the dwelling glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so all the people knew that this was the place where God dwelt amongst them. In fact, you could say that the tabernacle was the exact place where heaven and earth overlapped. Now, I'm a little bit reluctant to uh, reference here The Simpsons. Uh, It's one of my favorite TV shows growing up, but um, hope you'll forgive me. Um, There's this one episode where Homer and his family go to Australia, and, um, and they go into the U.S. Embassy, and then they're, as they're walking out, um, they see a sign that says, you are now entering Australia. And, uh, and they ask about what this means. And so the guard at the gate says, um, well, the U.S. Embassy is considered American soil. Uh, and so, of course, Homer decides to annoy everyone uh, by jumping from one side of the gate to the other and, you know, saying, now I'm in Australia, now I'm in America, now I'm in Australia, America, Australia, America, until finally the guard punches him in the face and says, we don't tolerate that kind of behavior in America, sir. And um, technically, I'm not sure it's correct uh, to say, I I looked it up uh, on Google, and uh, to say that the U.S. Embassy is U.S. soil, correct me if I'm wrong, Um, but I think it is true to say that, as it were, of the tabernacle. Um, You see, the tabernacle, uh, the most holy place, it really is the space of heaven on earthly soil, right? It's where heaven and earth kiss, as it were. In 1 Chronicles 28, David calls the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool. And it's as though God sits enthroned in heaven and his legs extend, as it were, he doesn't have legs, but it's as though his legs extend all the way down to earth to rest on the earth, on the Ark, in the most holy place. And I wonder now if you see why the tabernacle was David's favorite place on earth. For David, the tabernacle wasn't just a place of religion and duty. The tabernacle for David was a place of relationship and beauty. You see, it was a place of God's intimate presence. Now, you've got to bear in mind, this is the same David who wrote Psalm 139. This is the same David who asked God, where can I flee from your presence? You see, for David, he knew that in general, God was present everywhere. But he's not satisfied with that. Have a look at verse 8. He says, his heart longs to seek God's face. You see, David doesn't want to uh, just know God's presence in general. He wants to know God intimately. So why does he talk here about um, God's face? It's a little bit of an odd uh, reference. Well, let me answer this by asking you this. Um, When you're talking with someone, um, you know, not on the phone, in their presence, what do you look at? You don't look at their elbow when you're talking with them. You don't sort of gaze at their feet. Um... If that's you, if you do that, let me encourage you to to stop doing that because you're making everyone feel very uncomfortable. Now, of course not. When you're relating with someone, you don't just listen to their words, you look at their face. For it is from the face that a person speaks. Uh, And to a large extent, it is by the face that a person conveys their emotion 
uh, with their facial expressions. You know, for the young folks out there, it's hard to believe uh, that before emoticons, there was a time when you actually had to use your face to express what your words mean uh, emotionally, but that's, that's what the face is all about. If you like, a person's face is the window to their soul. And this is exactly the kind of intimacy that David seeks with God. You see, he doesn't just want to know God from afar uh, through looking at the stars or gazing at a sunset. Um, In other words, he doesn't just want to know about God. He wants to know God. He wants to know Him intimately and deeply. As he puts it in verse 4, he wants to dwell with God. He wants to gaze upon His beauty. It takes time, doesn't it, to gaze He doesn't just want to experience a glimpse of God's beauty through looking at something in creation. And by the way, uh, we see this all through the Psalms, uh, what David is seeking here. For example, in Psalm 63, David says his whole being thirsts and longs for God. In Psalm 42, the sons of Korah say their soul pants for God, like a deer panting for streams of water. Uh, And again, in Psalm 84, the sons of Korah declare that just one day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. What are these people after? They're not just after warm and fuzzy feelings. No. Uh, In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, uh, C.S. Lewis calls this longing for God, not just love of God, he calls it an appetite for God, hungry for God. He says, um, in this appetite for God, there is nothing shallow or selfish. On the contrary, he says, I find in the Psalms an experience fully God-centered, asking of God no gift more urgently than his presence, the gift of God himself, joyous to the highest degree and unmistakably real. That is so important. I'm going to say that again. In the Psalms and in Psalm 27, we see here an experience fully God-centered, asking of God no gift more urgently than His presence, the gift of Himself, joyous to the highest degree and unmistakably real. Now, here's my question, and I'm going to give you a second. It's going to be a little bit of an awkward pause. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. If you could ask God anything, if He says, I'm going to grant you one request, what is the one request? thing that you would ask from the Lord is what David seeks what you would seek from him now I know you know that what the right answer is but is that genuinely what you would seek after see that's exactly what David was after Because that's the purpose of the temple. God wants to dwell with his people in his intimate, personal presence. But the temple also points to a problem. So secondly, the problem of the temple. Um, In just the last week, actually, I was uh, around at two different houses for different people uh, from St. Matt's. At uh, one house, uh, the person had just moved in, so it was a brand new place. Uh, And in the other case... um, the person had just had the cleanest through, so their place was very clean. What do you think they asked me to do when I arrived? Take off your shoes, please. Um, why? You know, why would they run the risk that I might have smelly feet? Well, the reason is because, of course, people don't want clean things, ruined 
by unclean things like dirty shoes. Well, if that's true of human dwelling places, friends, how much more true is that of God's dwelling place? So the problem of the temple, it points this out. It points out that God is holy and we are not. And we don't deserve to be in his dwelling place, in his clean or holy space. Now I wonder uh, if you noticed um, when I was talking about the tabernacle, what was in the center uh, of the center of the center? In the center of the tabernacle uh, is the most holy place and in the center of the most holy place is the ark And in the center of the ark, what what was it? It was the Ten Commandments. Why? You see, when God comes to dwell among us, He doesn't come as a fairy godmother just to give us whatever our hearts desire. Um, And of course, I want to say God loves to bless us, and He's an amazing Father. But at the heart of our relationship with Him is this. When God comes to dwell among us, he comes to dwell among us as our king. That's why in the tabernacle, God sits enthroned above the ark in the middle of the camp. Uh, And that's why he establishes his rule through his written word at the center of the center of the center is the law. And as you know, uh, in the Ten Commandments, the very first law is that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, um, of course, none of us, I take it, literally bow down uh, to other gods or statues of other gods. But here's my question. Are there other things in your life that you love or that you trust or that you obey more than you love, trust, or obey God? That's what it means, that you shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to put it out there. I suspect if we're honest, none of us really do love God with our heart. None of us really, our whole heart, I mean, all the time. None of us really love our neighbor as ourselves. I suspect that there are many things that we look to from time to time to give us our sense of meaning and purpose and identity. I dare say we trust things other than God to make us happy and secure. We take matters into our own hands rather than obey God's word. We get angry at people who threaten us or who contradict us. We lie, you know, we twist the truth to save face. Uh, We cheat or we cut corners to save money. We use people to get what we want. We don't always keep our commitments and we often indulge in fantasies because real relationships are costly and they're messy. And I think in all those ways we break the Ten Commandments at the heart of God's rule in our midst, if we're honest. You see, the God who is holy, he wants, he longs uh, to dwell in our midst. That's what the whole Bible is all about in one sense. And that's an incredible privilege. But it's also for us an incredible problem. Let me put it like this. Have you ever noticed uh, in the Bible when someone comes into God's intimate presence, they don't generally jump for joy? like really the Shekinah glory when they come into God's presence. They don't jump for joy. They generally fall on their knees uh, in fear. Uh, So for example, when Isaiah saw God's glory in the temple, he cried out, woe is me, for I am ruined. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 
When the apostle John saw Jesus in a vision on the Isle of Patmos in his glorious presence, John fell at his feet, utterly paralyzed, it says, as though dead. So here's the problem. God wants to dwell in our midst, but because he is holy and because we are not, we can no more stand in his presence than a dry leaf can endure the raging heat of a bushfire. And, you know, because we don't live in the times of ancient Israel, we don't get, uh, we don't sort of see this or feel just how seriously God takes our sin. But if you're an ancient Israelite going to the tabernacle or to the temple, uh, the first thing you would have noticed is the smell, right? You would have smelled the stench of animals being sacrificed. Yes, the temple provided a way for sins to be forgiven, uh, but it was very gruesome and it was very bloody, Leviticus 17, um, God says this, the life of the creature is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement or reconciliation or friendship or restoration. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And there was provision for sacrifices every day. Uh, And in addition, once a year, God instructed the high priest to enter the most holy place. But as I say, only once a year and only with the blood of an animal to make atonement for the sins of all the people. Right, so in other words, the whole temple system cried out to us, cried out to the people. It's because of your sin that someone has to die. Either you pay with your blood or this animal pays. And that's how serious God takes our sin. That's the great problem that the temple points to. In the temple, God did provide a solution for sin. But that solution was only ever meant to be temporary. Uh, because as God says in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So friends, what hope is there for us? Well, let me hasten to point three, the person who gets us in. During the time uh, of the US Civil War, um, there was a story told of a soldier um, who discovered that, he found out um, that both his father and his brother Um, had been killed, and of course, he was absolutely devastated. Um, He was devastated because there was no one left to work on the family farm. Um, He was devastated, obviously, for his loss, but he was devastated that there was no one to care for his mother uh, and sister as well. Um, And so the soldier replied to be discharged uh, from the army, and um, that application was denied. Uh, And then he found out that the only way to get that application approved was to appeal to none other than the US president at the time, Abraham Lincoln. So the soldier went to the White House, uh, but the guards wouldn't let him in. And so this, this poor soldier, he went away weeping. Uh, and when he was in the garden crying, this boy came up to him and asked him, why are you crying? And, and the soldier told him. Um, and immediately the boy took this soldier uh, by the hand uh, and they went around the side of the White House Uh, And there uh, they were met with some guards, but the guards waved them through um, at that door. And then the the guards, uh, when they saw the boy, right? So then the next checkpoint, the guards saw the boy with the man, they let them through. And then another checkpoint, and then another. All the way into the very center of the White House. And there in the library was the president, Abraham Lincoln. And he looked up from his papers and he said, yes, what is it, my son? And the boy said, Father, please, would you hear this man's story? And Abraham Lincoln listened to the story, 
and he um, approved for this man to be discharged so he could go home and look after um, his mother and his sister. You see, the soldier got in to see the president, but only through the way opened up by the president's son. And friends, let me tell you, this is exactly the way, the only way through which, by which, we get into the presence of the Father. To see us, or rather to get us in to see the Father, Jesus, he doesn't just take our hands first and foremost. No, he actually let soldiers take his hands and nail them to a cross. As Hebrews 10, it puts it like this. It says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Just pause for a second. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. If you're an ancient Israelite, this would just blow your mind. In fact, if you're an ancient Israelite, this would be blasphemy, except that God says this to us. You have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, but it wasn't torn from bottom to top as though done by human hands. It was torn from top to bottom to show that it was torn by God's own hands. And in that moment, the whole temple system was destroyed. You see, the curtain in the temple had said, keep out. But the cross says, come on in. The curtain says, sin is serious. The price for sin is death. The cross agrees, but now the cross says, Christ's blood has paid it all. Christ's death declares, it is finished. And by his death, a new and living way has been opened up into the most intimate, the most personal presence of God, into the most holy place. And that is incredible. And so before we uh, conclude, I just want to apply this just one specific way. The one thing David desired was to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. And I asked you earlier, what about you? Is this the one thing you desire as well? Well, if you do, my question, uh, well, my question then is, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to be the first to admit, we're very busy, aren't we? Like, you know, uh, we're busy with work, we're busy with kids, uh, we're busy doing things uh, for church and for community, and, uh, and it's not always a bad thing uh, to be busy. But hopefully I'll say this carefully, carefully, if you are too busy to spend time with the Lord, and I hate to say this, but you really are too busy. My prayer is that we won't be like Martha, running around, you know, being busy serving the Lord, when Jesus really just wanted her to be like Mary and sit at his feet and learn from him and love him. Put it another way. My prayer is that we'll never be content just to sort of dip into church on a Sunday when God invites us to sort of dwell with him. My prayer is that we'll never be content just to sort of glimpse God's beauty when God invites us to gaze upon him and to see the beauty of his character and to find your delight there. Again, I'll admit, um, you know, including myself, busy people 
tend to cut corners. For me, I'm tempted to let other people spend time in the most holy place that I might be nourished uh, from the amazing things they're learning about God there. You know, for me, what that looks like for me is that I'm very tempted just to listen to an amazing podcast, you know, amazing sermon, uh, or listen to some great Christian music. But here's the thing. In the Christian life, you cannot outsource time with Jesus. You know, you can't just pay us professionals to do it for you. You can't let the ministers or the music team spend time with God on your behalf in the most holy place. You just can't. And you're missing out. You know, my job as a pastor, really, it's only to lead you to the spiritual waters from which I myself have been drinking. I can lead you there, but I can't drink for you. And honestly, in the long run, I, I really believe, you know, we're just off the back of a you know, commitment series, Better Together. I do want to uphold, we need each other to dwell and to gaze. But today, I really just want to focus on this. I believe the best way to truly dwell with the Lord and to truly gaze upon His beauty is by personal Bible reading and prayer. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, oh, here we go. You know, I'm an Anglican minister, so of course this is my application uh, to the sermon. And okay, you're right. Like, you know, it's true. I'll admit Bible reading and prayer can seem a little dry at times. But have a listen to what God promises you if you stick with it. God says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's a promise to urge you to continue on in your Bible reading and prayer. I can testify, friends, that the times that I've had the sweetest intimacy of joy and delight in who God is in and of himself, the sweetest times of intimacy with him have been when I've, been, uh, when I've spent time of deep reflection on his word and through pouring out my heart to him uh, in prayer. What does that look like for me? Um, my aim, and I'm, I, I don't you know, I'll confess I don't always do this, but um, my aim every morning um, is to read the Bible and to pray using uh, a method that I, that's, that's very popular. It's called soap journaling. All right, so I just use just a cheap little journal uh, like this, and uh, here's what I do. Um, on the left column, I write um, S-O-A-P, so S, Scripture. Um, so, that, you know, that's just the passage I'm looking at, you know, like Psalm 27. Um, and then I write O uh, for observations, and literally I just jot down whatever, you know, strikes me as interesting uh, or helpful. Um, and most of the time I, I basically just summarize the passage, you know, or draw diagrams or pictures or whatever. Um, and then A for application, and um, here I just jot down whatever specific belief or attitude or behavior um, I can grow in or focus on uh, for that day. Um, and finally, under prayer, I kind of get a little bit more specific. I use the ACTS model. Some of you will know that. Um, ACTS, A for adoration. Gosh, it's good to start prayer with adoring God, loving Him for who He is, not just for what He does for us. Um, so one thing from the passage that I want to praise or adore God for, um, I talk then, I write down um, C for confession, uh, where I say sorry to God. Um, for some things I've done wrong in the previous 24 hours. Um, and usually it's something related to the passage. Oh gosh, God, I really need to be more patient. Really need to be more, I'm sorry I wasn't you know, more compassionate or whatever. Um, and then T for Thanksgiving, listing all the amazing things I'm thankful for. My gosh, I mean, just that 
you know, how good is Manly? Like, there's always something to praise God for if you live here in Manly. Um, and then S for supplication. And, um, you know, and that, that's just a fancy word for asking God for stuff. Um, so, so I write that down and, uh, you know, I want to start with, um, you know, maybe myself, the church, and then the world, uh, however it is that you want to pray. I find it really helpful to write bullet points of my prayers because I don't know if you're like me, but my mind just wanders all over the place and I get distracted and, uh, and I think about other things. So that's how I read the Bible and pray and um, I can't recommend it enough. And I still imagine there are some out there thinking, oh, Bible reading and prayer, really? I want to use this great illustration and here's where we'll close. Tim Keller, he's a US um, pastor and preacher and, and author he, he likewise points out that Bible reading and prayer does sometimes sound very ho-hum. But he uses a great illustration to talk about its power. Uh, he says Bible reading and prayer is like Elijah building the altar at Mount Carmel. You know, you're the one who needs to do it. But God is the one who sends the fire from heaven. You know, sometimes the fire might take a while. But he won't send the fire unless you build the altar. So friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. Dwell with him. Dwell. Don't just dip. Gaze upon him. Don't just glimpse. Spend time with him, delighting in the beauty of his character. Adore him for his love and his justice. Praise him for his mercy and his grace. Plumb the depths of his goodness as it unfolds in depth and in detail across the pages of your Bible. And as you do, and as you pray to him, may you seek and may you find and experience fully God-centered, asking of God no gift more urgently than his presence, the gift of himself, joyous to the highest degree, and unmistakably real. Let me pray. Father, thank you that through Jesus you have opened up a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place that we might know you personally and intimately. Help us to come to you and to spend time with you, not as a matter of religion and duty, but as a matter of relationship and beauty. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.